Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. American society is sitting on a volcano of discontent. The unprecedented anger across the country is starting to find an expression, with mass protests spreading like wildfire, so far in around 30 cities and rising. This pressure has been building up for a long time, and we're just seeing the beginning of what will be a prolonged epoch of crisis, of revolution, and of counter-revolution. And once again, necessity has been expressed through an accident, through a single event, although the murder of George Floyd was no accident. Millions of people have watched the horrific footage of the brutal, inhuman way in which George Floyd was murdered in cold blood, in broad daylight in Minneapolis, suffocated to death by a cop while pleading for his life. I can't breathe. I'm about to die. Everything hurts. This is how the police responded after being called in to investigate an alleged case of forgery using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy a pack of cigarettes at a grocery store. Next thing you know, the cops are forcing George Floyd on the ground, pinning down his neck, literally choking him to death. This has happened over and over. It's a repeat down to the same words of the scenes of police violence that we've seen time and time again. I can't breathe. By now, the footage has been watched millions of times. And when the cops realized that he was dead, they responded calmly. They thought it would be business as usual. They actually issued a a routine statement entitled, Man Dies After Medical Incident During Police Interaction. Obviously, this event was all it took to set off the storm of protest that is now sweeping the country. We're seeing the anger that has been accumulating in society. And it took no time for this movement to explode in Minneapolis. City Hall tried to act quickly. They knew they had a a powder keg. They immediately fired the four cops involved in the killing, but it was too late. At a moment's notice, hundreds of protesters started to gather at the place where George Floyd was killed, and this quickly turned into thousands. This was the 49th police murder of a black man in the city of Minneapolis alone the 49th since 2000. It's the same thing in every major city, most of them cities run by the Democratic Party, by the way. Since the Black Lives Matter movement first erupted in 2014, the number of police killings has only gone up. Over a thousand people are killed by police every year, and the victims are disproportionately black. Black people are three times more likely to be killed by police than whites. Now, yesterday, The cop who killed George Floyd was arrested and charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. And this is the first time in the history of the state of Minnesota that a police officer is being criminally prosecuted in the death of a black civilian. That's never happened before. And it's extremely rare. 99% of the police who have killed people 
in the last six years have not been charged with any crime. 99% killed someone, took a life, and then walk free. No legal action. They just go home. We saw the same treatment with the men who murdered Ahmad Arbery in February in Georgia. He was jogging on the street. They killed him, shot him with a shotgun in broad daylight, and then just walked free for months until the footage of the killing went viral. For every police murder that catches the national headlines, there are countless other black lives that are being taken, and their names don't make it into the headlines, and it happens every day. So it might appear that not much has changed since 2014, except something has changed. The mood in the streets is not the same as it was five or six years ago. There's a discontent in society that is a lot deeper now. And this brutal violence goes beyond the images that you see in the footage. It's not just that black lives are being threatened and hunted by individual police, although that's the reality for millions of black people who are not even free to walk down the sidewalk or go jogging without having their lives threatened. And it's not just the, the direct police terror. Black lives are threatened by the entire capitalist system. This is a system which revolves around the enrichment of a small minority while making life impossible to live for millions of black people and for the working class as a whole. It was Malcolm X who said, you can't have capitalism without racism. And in the last couple months, in the context of the crisis and the pandemic, we can see just how hardwired racism is in this system. As the capitalists force the economy to reopen, even though the death toll continues to rise, now we're well over 100,000 lives lost in the U.S. But it's not the capitalists who are putting their, themselves at risk. It's the workers who are being sacrificed for this system. Yesterday's low-wage service sector workers are now being called essential workers, and they're being used as cannon fodder for the economy. Once again, we see that black lives don't matter to the capitalists. Only the profits matter. That's the ugly reality that this virus is exposing. You look at the death rates among black Americans in this pandemic, it's more than double the death rate for whites. And in places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Kansas, Missouri, black residents are six or seven times more likely to die from the virus as whites. That's not a medical issue. That is a class issue. And it's a result of the deep-seated racism of this system. You look at places like Detroit, one of the hardest hit areas in the country. Even before the pandemic broke out, it was a hotspot for respiratory diseases. Why? Because it was the home to the country's largest garbage incinerator. For decades, it's been burning trash that was brought in from all over the Midwest, even from Canada, and people were breathing this. Almost 90% of the residents living within a mile of the incinerator were black. And the, EP estimates, uh, the EPA estimates that 70% of black people in the U.S. live in those kinds of conditions. Counties where there are unsafe levels of pollution. So for every black person suffocating under the knee of a cop, there are tens of thousands suffocating from the conditions they're living in. Meanwhile, the city hospitals that serve primarily black and brown people are the ones that are being shut down and sold off to be turned into luxury condos. You saw that happen in Hanneman Hospital in Philadelphia. That's what the capitalist system offers us. Vacant luxury apartments, while tens of millions are now at risk of being evicted. You have a full 35% of households with children going hungry. 
while food is literally being destroyed and plowed into the ground because it's more profitable than selling it at a loss. You have 41 million people suddenly out of work, especially low-income workers who are already living paycheck to paycheck. So you have all of these factors, a world moving into a depression, making it impossible to live. And in the midst of all of this, you have cops continuing to kill innocent black people. All of this is part of the background to the anger we now see across the country. These conditions are the kind of fuel that can ignite a revolutionary upheaval. We saw last year unprecedented civil unrest all around the world. A quarter of the countries on the Earth's surface had mass uprisings. And the idea that this could spread to the U.S. is not so abstract these days. In fact, it's happening now. In Minneapolis, we've seen five days of mass demonstrations, which have not only been brutally attacked by police, but also by the media, which frames it as violent chaos and rioting and predictably focuses attention on the fires that have been started and the windows that have been broken instead of on the police violence and the mass arrests. Although they did cover the, the treatment of a CNN host who uh, is black and Latino, arrested on live TV in the middle of a report. And then you have Trump, the racist billionaire in the White House, calling the protesters thugs and threatening to bring more violence. Meanwhile, the uprising has continued. On Thursday night, protesters managed to take over the city's third police precinct, which they set on fire, forcing the police to evacuate. Last night, they defied the 8 o'clock curfew and even forced National Guard troops to retreat at one point. Protesters started assembling also at the 5th police precinct, preparing to overtake that one too, although so far the, the police have not fled that one. But unlike some of these other instances of destruction of property and fires, many of which are, you know, these are actions that are being invited by undercover police agents in the crowd, or they're actions of just isolated individuals. That's one thing. But the act of taking a police precinct, that's fundamentally different. That is a de facto act of insurrection. And a lot of people look at these scenes and they're shocked to, to think that's, that's Minneapolis. These are American cities. But this is exactly the kind of scenario that the strategists of the system and military leaders in the U.S. have been anticipating. In normal times, the military doesn't get involved in, in domestic policing duties. But for months at the Pentagon, there has been talk of invoking the Insurrection Act, legislation uh, that would allow federal troops to be deployed domestically in order to maintain uh, law and order in a situation where law enforcement is overwhelmed in the face of civil unrest. Over the last uh, couple months, National Guard troops have been deployed in almost half the states, mostly to support logistical tasks in, in the fight against the pandemic. But it wasn't hard to imagine a scenario where we see this kind of measure being enacted more broadly. And that's where we are now. When you have military-grade predator drone circling Minneapolis, providing surveillance from 20,000 feet, and on the ground you have over 1,000 National Guard troops deployed in Minnesota to attempt to restore order. And this morning in, in Georgia, there was a state of emergency declared, 500 National Guard troops deployed in Atlanta. Those are state-level troops. But the Department of Defense, the, the Pentagon, has now ordered the Army to prepare military police units to deploy to Minneapolis. And at the direct request from Trump, active duty units of, of, at Army bases across the country are now being told 
to prepare for deployment. And the meanwhile, the protests are spreading to major cities across the country over the last few days. There was even a sizable protest in Washington, D.C. that made its way right up to the White House. The Secret Service had to put the building on lockdown while Trump and the press were inside and they could hear the protesters from outside the windows. You have this, this movement in New York, LA, Phoenix, Denver, Louisville, Memphis, St. Louis, the, the list goes on and on. Kentucky, you have the, the um, actual uh, live rounds were, were being shot. And despite the pandemic, you know, this is taking place around the whole country. People are pouring out into the streets. Young people, working class people, blacks, whites, people of all backgrounds, of all ages. There is a general widespread rejection of this police terror. And it's not just in, in one city. In fact, there have been so many police killings of innocent black people in the last couple months that in many of these cities, people are marching not only in solidarity with George Floyd, but they're marching to honor the, the memory and to demand justice for local people that have been killed in their own cities. In Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmad Aubrey was killed in February, there are now marches for Ahmad. And in Louisville, where seven protesters were shot, they were, they were hospitalized now, um, people were marching for Breonna Taylor, a 26-year-old EMT who was killed in her own home by police two months ago. And in Phoenix, they're marching for 28-year-old Dion Johnson, who was killed by police after they approached him uh, for sleeping in his parked car. This rage is shared by people across the country. But there's also a sense of exasperation. For six years, we've seen one mass expression of discontent after another, and yet the killings continue. And people are expressing a sentiment of being fed up. When will it end? What will it take to make this stop? And that's an important question for this moment when we clearly have the makings of what's becoming an explosive mass movement, what will it take for this movement to succeed? How can it develop into something beyond an expression of rage? Rage which is absolutely justified in the face of centuries of, of oppression. As Martin Luther King put it, riots are the language of the unheard. But the question we want to ask as revolutionaries is, as people are making their voices heard. How can this movement go from this stage to a higher stage? What are the tasks of the movement? And as Marxists, the first thing we would point out is that if this movement is going to really spread and really continue to grow and not fizzle out, it has to become a movement of the entire working class. When we're out on the streets demanding justice and threatening to shut it down, bring the system to a halt, we should keep in mind that it's the working class that has the power to shut the system down. If working people withhold their labor, everything grinds to a halt. And a general strike in, in Minneapolis, it wouldn't be the first time that there was a general strike in that city. We should study the lessons of the 1934 strike. That kind of action would really pose the question of who runs society. And it could rapidly spread to other cities. You could have a general strike movement spread to New York, to Louisville, and, and beyond. A number of, of unions have made statements expressing solidarity with these protests and condemning the police who killed George Floyd, who himself was a truck driver. Minneapolis bus drivers organized in ATU Local 1005 are raising the slogan, an injury to one is an injury to all. And they've taken the initiative of thwarting the efforts of the police to conduct mass arrests 
by refusing to transport uh, police to the protests or to allow their buses to be used to transport arrested demonstrators away to the jails. And in New York, we're seeing the same thing. Last night, a city bus was commandeered by NYPD and filled with arrested protesters. They wanted to haul off and the driver refused to drive it. He parked the bus in the middle of a huge cheering crowd and stepped off the bus. And nationally, the Transport Workers Union is instructing its members to refuse work, uh, to work with the police and is showing solidarity with the protests. So we are starting to see some promising signs that parts of the labor movement are beginning to understand this fight against police brutality as their own fight, as part of the class struggle. And they're taking steps to show class solidarity. Some workers are even organizing Black Lives Matter committees in their unions. For the four days after the murder, before the cop was arrested, there were reports that food delivery workers were refusing to deliver food to the cop's house when they found out who they were delivering to. This happened several times. And there have been other initiatives by workers organized in unions, uh, including the teachers union and others who are helping to organize transportation, distribute needed items like food, water, medicine, since a lot of the stores are, are shut down. At the demonstration, some union workers have been helping to distribute masks and hand sanitizer. Uh, Sarah Nelson, the president of the Flight Attendants Union, who called for a general strike last year, recently made a statement in solidarity uh, with the protest. And she called, uh, she clearly put the, the issue in class terms. She said, throughout history, the racism has been exploited by the ruling class to promote the idea of competition among those who do the work of our country and create the value that makes a few people rich. Again, these things are a good start, but there's a lot, of, there's a lot more that organized labor should be doing. There are 364,000 union members in Minnesota. These unions should link up directly with the protests, mobilize their membership to flood the streets of the Twin Cities. And if the union tops took this kind of action, not only would it make the protests more effective, it would also change the character of the movement into a broader working class upsurge that would be a lot harder to repress. You know, there's a reason Trump and the media are working together to paint these protests as violent riots. They're trying to prepare the way for a violent crackdown. But if the organized working class were mobilized in solidarity, if they bring out the transport workers, the teachers, steel workers, firefighters, workers of all industries, the police would have a much harder time carrying out mass arrests and attacking them with tear gas. And if they did, they could easily provoke a, a much larger uprising with the outrage that that would spark. Students of, of revolution know that that's precisely the kind of events that can spark a, a real revolution across the country. And it's also not just about helping the movement spread. This is the time for direct workers' action to ensure safety. In the face of this kind of police terror, the organized working class is the only force that can protect people from the violence of the cops in a collective way through mass struggle. The Minneapolis Regional Labor Federation should organize neighborhood defense committees to unite workers, unite unionized workers and unorganized workers and the unemployed on a neighborhood level and form defense committees that can be ready to mobilize at a moment's notice to respond to police violence in working class neighborhoods on, on a massive scale. When George Floyd was killed, there were a number of people, bystanders, you know, pleading with the cops to let him breathe. 
But if there had been a workers' defense committee in that neighborhood ready to respond, you could have mobilized a crowd, very quickly overwhelmed those cops who might think twice about executing an unarmed man if they're encircled by 30 or 50 workers from the neighborhood. That's the only way to maintain safety when the police are the source of daily terror for millions of working people. The working class can only rely on its own forces against repression from the capitalist state. And there have been growing calls for measures like community control of the police or community review boards, but we should consider the, the nature of the state. This apparatus exists purely to defend the privileges of the capitalist minority. They defend the inequality and private property, and that brutality is hardwired into capitalism. You can't uproot that brutality without uprooting the system as a whole. As Martin Luther King put it uh, toward the end of his life, these are problems that cannot be solved without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first saying profit must be taken out of slums. Capitalism is the problem. That's the revolutionary conclusion that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X arrived at toward the end of their lives before they were assassinated by, by agents of, of the capitalist system. And it's a conclusion that will be drawn again in the near future by millions. In fact, people are already drawing revolutionary conclusions in the US. Trillions are going to bail out the banks and corporations who have enriched their shareholders over the last decade like never before, while millions literally go hungry. That's what capitalism offers. What we need is a government of the working class that can take over the vast wealth of the banks and monopolies, bring the Fortune 500 companies under public ownership and democratic workers' control. And that would make it possible to rationally plan the economy to dramatically raise living standards. Under a workers' government, we could establish a minimum wage of $1,000 a week, a shorter work week of just 20 hours, which could then be reduced even more. Rent could be capped at just 10% of income, and everybody could be provided with decent living conditions. Homelessness could be eliminated virtually in a matter of, of weeks when you have all of these vacant uh, homes owned by speculators. And we could pass universal health care, universal education. We could start uh, a massive program of useful public works, starting with the neighborhoods with the highest unemployment. You know, provide union jobs and benefits to everybody. Obviously, the Democrats and Republicans are not going to move one inch in this direction. That's what a, a, a socialist party, you know, th these are parties of the billionaires. They're completely in the hands of the ruling class. In fact, it was Joe Biden who authored the crime bill in the 90s that led to the mass incarceration that we have today. More aggressive policing, more prison sentences, more prison beds, more profits. No matter who wins in November, it's their class that's going to continue to rule while our class is under attack and the struggle will continue. Instead, we need a mass socialist party based on the organized working class armed with a socialist program to fundamentally transform society. We live in a period of intense class struggle and the mass movements we're seeing are nothing compared to what is in store in the coming years. The discontent will only grow. Capitalism will continue to sack black lives and the lives of workers and young people until the working class can bring it to a stop. Only by overthrowing capitalism and building socialism can we achieve reparations for centuries of racist oppression and exploitation. In fact, the very future, uh, the survival of humanity on this planet 
is threatened by the continued existence of the capitalist system. What is urgently required is a revolutionary leadership that can be a direction and a strategy for the mass movements that are to come so that these mass struggles can actually lead to the transformation of society. This is what the IMT is fighting to build in over 40 countries around the world. Under a workers' government, when we harness all the potential in the economy and eliminate all this unnecessary poverty, hunger, homelessness, scarcity, under those conditions, it will become possible to abolish the police and prisons, along with every other brutal remnant of class society. That's the world we're fighting for in our lifetime. And we invite you to join the IMT and help us achieve it. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.